The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. For my Easter message, I made reference to this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, about this lady, Evelyn, who uh, basically second guesses all the choices of her life and probably most poignantly, um, really whether she had married the wrong guy in her life. And so trying to complete her mission, she travels to all these parallel universes. And by visiting some of them, she has the opportunity to see how actually glamorous and successful her life could have looked like if she actually chose not to marry her husband, Waymond. Um, Incidentally, I, I kept thinking that they were just saying Raymond with a Chinese accent the whole time. I didn't actually realize Waymond is an actual name, and I, I, I guess it's more common within uh, the Chinese circles. But anyway, so her husband's name is Waymond, and she, traveling through these parallel universes, eventually returns to her own universe where she tells her husband Waymond, um, I saw my life without you. I wish you could have seen it. It was beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's a, and in a way, you could say, that's the human condition, isn't it? We're always wondering if we made the right choice, choices in life. We're always wondering what could have been. What would my best life look like if I could have actually lived it? At the age of 27, poet and philosopher and naturalist Henry David Thoreau wrestled with these same questions leading him to walk away from a very comfortable and privileged life, building a cabin by Walden Pond where he lived off the land. And years after doing that, he would write a book called Walden where he explained his rationale. And he said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die discover that I had not lived. Very inspirational quote, isn't it? But what I would also argue is that sadly, through our search for this quote, best life, I think it could actually lead us down some really self-centered paths. What if I left civilization to discover what I'm really made of in a cabin, in a wood? What if I made some different career moves how much more successful could my life have been? What if I never had this child? What if I wasn't stuck in this marriage? In the universe where Evelyn is so successful, she realized she, she is able to achieve that success because she rebuffs all of Wayman's attempts to court her into marriage. But in that same universe where she's so successful, Waymond still expresses his undying love to her. And he says to her, so even though you have broken my heart yet again, I want to say in another life, I would have really liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. And in the actual universe where Evelyn lives, Waymond is actually true to his words. Because unlike Evelyn, who is utterly discontent and restless with her life, 
Waymond is totally content and happy operating a laundromat with her. And I think this is the wisdom that the Bible calls us to understand. That true fulfillment and meaning in life is not primarily found in personal achievement or some kind of worldly success, but in loving others and receiving love from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, uh, verses 11 to 13, chapter 13 says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What is the greatest value in the eyes of God? What are the things that are going to last into eternity? I think so much of what we think is important in this moment is actually going to fade away. But Paul tells us that there is something that will last forever, that we will carry into eternity, and that is love. And as we continue on in the series on the fruit of the Spirit, I want to keep drawing your attention to the intensely relational nature of this fruit. The focus, in other words, isn't on so much discovering your greatest potential or self-actualization, but it is in the impact that you are having on others. Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Each of these expressions of the fruit of the Spirit in our life have such strong relational component to them. And they all center around the first virtue of love. And so our focus today is on faithfulness. And I want to confess something to you. The deeper that I got into my study on faithfulness, the more I began to struggle with the sermon. Because it was just so hard to nail down a good definition of faithfulness. It was like, like, like putty in your hands. It just You couldn't really grasp what exactly is faithfulness. And I finally realized that a big part of my problem was that I was thinking of faithfulness as like a single, singular virtue. Like honesty or kindness or patience. But what I came to realize is that rather than seeing it as a single virtue, it is better to understand faithfulness as a group of virtues that ultimately lead us to how others experience us. Let me say that again. Faithfulness is, I think, a constellation of virtues that result in a kind of life that ultimately leads to how somebody experiences us. I think Christopher Wright's definition is helpful to paint a big picture of what faithfulness looks like in practice. He writes, on the one hand, being faithful means being trustworthy and dependable. A faithful person is a person of honesty and integrity, someone you can rely on. Faithful people keep their word. They do what they promise. They can be trusted not to cheat or deceive. On the other hand, being faithful means exercising that kind of trustworthy behavior 
over a long period of time. Faithful people have proved that they can be trusted for the long haul. You don't have to check up on them. You don't have to worry that even if they did a good job last week, they might let you down this week. No, faithful people show that they are routinely dependable in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of circumstances. Faithfulness is the character of somebody you know you can simply rely on all the time. And if we sort of break down this idea of faithfulness, I want to say this. At one level, faithfulness is rooted in some essential qualities of a kind of person that you are inwardly, like honesty and integrity and sincerity. And I think this is what we see illustrated in the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And so Daniel's faithfulness is connected with his integrity with his morally upright character or his conduct, so that even his enemies could find nothing with which they could accuse him. But what I would also say is this, that faithfulness is more than just these inner qualities of integrity and honesty or consistency. It also describes a person who exercises these qualities for the benefit of others. That's why faithfulness includes other virtues like loyalty, dependability, trustworthiness proverbs chapter 17 verse 17 says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity this is a picture of faithfulness expressed in dependable loyalty this person is there when you need them and you can count on them proverbs chapter 20 verse 6 says many claim to have unfailing love but a faithful person who can find. In other words, what uh, Solomon is saying is words are cheap. Words are cheap. But your f- faithfulness will be proven by you keeping your promises and pulling through for people in their times of need. Look at this interesting proverb that in a way you can say, what does this have to do with faithfulness? But we'll unpack it a little because I think it really helps us to understand one of the essential qualities of faithfulness. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 26 As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. Now, we tend to associate sluggards with the idea of laziness, right? Laziness. But this proverb draws attention to a sluggard's unreliability, his unreliability. In other words, this person causes all kinds of grief and stress to those who are counting on him because his unfaithfulness to his responsibilities. In other words, it's one thing to be lazy when it comes to your own private affairs. And really, who cares about that? That's your life to live. But think about the damage that you cause when your carelessness and your unreliability with tasks is related to what others have entrusted to you. That's a problem, isn't it? Now, think of the people in your life. Now, I I hesitated about this exercise because I don't know if it's the best thing for us to start thinking negatively about people, but just do this thought experiment with me for a second, if you would. Think of the people in your life that you would consider to be unreliable. 
unreliable. And I would argue that one of the traits that they are all likely to have in common is that your needs have a very low priority in their life. In other words, what you know about these people is they're going to take care of their own agenda first. And just maybe, maybe if they have anything left over, they'll think about you. And I wonder, have you ever experienced the stress and frustration of being at the mercy of somebody like that? Where you really need that person to pull through for you. But you know that they're looking for the slightest excuse to get out of their commitment of trying to help you. This is why at its core, faithfulness is about loving others enough to put their needs above your own. In this sense, also we could say this, faithfulness is the expression of the totality of the person that you are becoming. It captures, in other words, the inner qualities of honesty and integrity and consistency, but it also describes a person who is relationally mature, loyal, trustworthy, caring, dependable. I also think that seeing faithfulness in this lens also highlights how much healthy relationships depend on faithfulness. Without faithfulness, there is a breakdown of trust and goodwill, isn't there? There is no secure foundation on which to build a relationship if there isn't faithfulness. On the other hand, faithful people thrive in relationships and they build healthy communities around them because of their character, of who they are. And what the Bible tells us is that our relationship with God is built on the solid foundation of his faithful love for us. In my message on goodness and kindness, I talked about this word hesed, right? Which it cannot be translated by a single English word. And I mentioned that in older English translations, it uses the word loving kindness. Well, another way that we could actually translate hesed would be faithful love or covenant love because it also captures the idea of faithfulness in his love. In other words, it is God's loyal and dependable love for us that is captured in the concept of hesed. And the Bible is filled with these passages that describe God's faithfulness and love. Psalm 91, verse 2 to 4. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And there are many of these psalms that actually will combine this hesed love with the idea of his faithfulness. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, and his love, his hesed, endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your hesed, your unfailing love, and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. Here in this psalm, hesed is translated as unfailing love in the NIV or steadfast love in the ESV, which is to emphasize that loyal, dependable nature of God's love for us. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, you find this very interesting verse that says, I, the Lord, do not change. And then he says this, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. <laughs> Very interesting, right? It says, 
I do not change, and therefore you are not destroyed. What he is saying is the emphasis is not only on the fact that God is consistent and unchanging in his character, but as a result of that consistency, his steadfastness, we experience that as dependable love and mercy, that God does not destroy us even though we fail him. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus exhibited that same unwavering consistency. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's why John could write in his first letter, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What John is telling us is that whenever we confess our sins, like clockwork, God forgives us because he is faithful. In other words, faithfulness is such a bedrock part of God's nature, but I, saw, I would also argue this, and because of that, I think it is so easy to take it for granted. But I want you to do another thought experiment. Imagine if God held on to all of these virtues, but the one virtue that was missing was faithfulness. Imagine, in other words, an unfaithful God. Imagine if you confessed your sins to God and you were never sure how he would respond because it kind of depended on what mood he was in that day. And God would say in response to our confession, I know I said I would forgive. I know, I know it's in the Bible, okay? But I changed my mind. Like, I'm just really not in a forgiving mood today. So before the day is over, you're going to feel my wrath, okay? Imagine if God did have fits of rage or just simply had a bad day once in a while and took it out on us. Then whenever something bad happens to you about a food poisoning, like actually I think I had last night, or a ruined vacation because of bad weather, or even something far more serious like the diagnosis of cancer, you would always have to wonder, wouldn't you? Was God having one of these bad days. Because the truth is in many other religions, the gods are anything but faithful. They are often, in fact, portrayed as fickle and temperamental and even dangerous. The gods could be petty, throwing fits of jealous rage or responding vengefully at the slightest bruise to their ego. This is actually a painting by um, an 18th century French painter by the name of Jacques-Louis David. And the painting is entitled Diana and Apollo Killing Niobe's Children. It's a horrific scene that is being portrayed here. I don't know if you know the Roman myth based on the Greek myth. Niobe boasts that she deserves more praise than the goddess Latona because while Latona only has two children, she has 14 Seven sons, seven daughters. And in her anger, Latona commands her two kids to kill all of Niobe's kids. And her two children have to be Diana, happen to be Diana and Apollo. And so they first kill all seven sons. And then as the daughters are mourning and burying those brothers of theirs, the gods come back and kill off the remaining seven daughters. And what this scene depicts is the moment when Niobe begs for mercy 
and asks Diana and Apollo to spare her last daughter, her last child, and not kill that child. But sadly, that petition falls on deaf ears, and her last child is slain. I don't think these ancient myths were created out of pure entertainment value to tell a good story. It was, it's not their Netflix of <laughs> ancient Greek, Roman life. I think they were actually attempts to understand the human condition. In other words, the chaos caused by the gods in the heavens explains why there's so much chaos that we experience on the earth down below. I mean, why else would there be so much suffering in a world like ours? If it isn't because we are at the mercy of cruel and fickle gods who demonstrate bad behavior over and over again. But what's so fascinating is that against all these pagan religions, the Bible's understanding of suffering is so different the Bible does acknowledge that there is suffering in this life, that we will experience setbacks and suffering. But it isn't because God is in a bad mood or that he is out to get us. The foundational understanding from the Christian perspective is that God is a faithful God and his goodness and love toward us is constant. This is why even after suffering one of the most horrible experiences imaginable where Jerusalem falls and the temple is burned and the people of God are deported into Babylon as captives, the prophet Jeremiah could still say these astonishing words in Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 17. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In other words, Jeremiah understood what drove this act of painful discipline was God's love for his people. And Paul would echo that same trust in God's faithful love, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Everything, even the hardships, are part of God's good for us. That includes the painful chapters that we would all rather forget about. But the faithfulness of God is the foundation of that core belief by which I enter into life and experience even suffering. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, starting in verse 9, could say, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The bedrock belief about God 
is that he is good and he is faithful. And out of that flows our understanding of everything we go through in this life. And so like God himself, what God calls his children to do is to demonstrate that same faithfulness in their lives. And I think in order to properly honor that call of God for our own faithfulness, it is to ask, how can I best honor God with what has been entrusted to me? And I think that's why Jesus tells this parable of the talents where he gives of his wealth to each of his servants and asks them to invest in it for his glory. And that's why at the end of it, as he comes to give a reward to the faithful ones, in Matthew 25, 21, it says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It gives us pause to reflect. What is it that God is asking of my life? in this season? What would it mean for me to be faithful to the things that are on his heart, his agenda? And one thing that I just keep wanting to pull you toward is the relational component to this. I don't want us to miss that, even as we think about being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 to 6 says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What does a faithful person look like in relationship with others? It means sometimes having the courage to say tough tough things to somebody. It means that you care about somebody enough to maybe at times even have to hurt them. But what it means is that on your heart as you look at the spectrum of the relationships that exist in your life, It is not just, what am I getting from these friendships? What do I benefit from this marriage? But to be faithful is to ask, what is God's heart in this relationship? What does God want to do in this friendship, in this marriage? And what would it mean for me to be faithful to that calling of God and what he wants to accomplish in my influence on this person, to my children, to my spouse, to my coworkers, to my friends, my fellow church members? I think the truth is all of this can feel overwhelming, can't it? Because in a sense, what I'm arguing is faithfulness is the totality of the person you're becoming. And I'm saying that there are these inward qualities like honesty and integrity, sincerity, as well as this relational maturity where you are generous and you are caring, you are dependable and reliable and trustworthy. And then add on top of that this aspect that Christopher Wright brought at the beginning of the definition we looked at, which is this proven track record that you don't gain a reputation for faithfulness overnight, but it's something achieved over a lifetime of having that consistency in that person that you are. And this doesn't sound like an invitation. It sounds like a judgment, right? And saying, I, I just give up here. And I, I want to argue that that's why actually discipleship is such a long journey to not give up on the hope of experiencing this as essential part of your own character, of the person that you become, the reputation that you will uphold for the glory of God. Eugene Peterson says this about discipleship. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel 
it is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction, thereby resulting results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. Now, Nietzsche got a lot of things wrong, but actually I think this is something that we can say is important for us to know, which is that in order to experience something of lasting value in our life, what is required is a long obedience in the same direction. The problem with Nietzsche was he was looking in the wrong direction, right? But when we see that our path leads to Christ and the things that God wants of us, then suddenly we begin to understand that I need to have this patient, enduring walk with God in order to experience this fruit of the Spirit in my life. And we cannot experience this overnight, nor can we experience this by simply muscling our way through it. It must be the work of God. That is why this is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Every day as we learn to depend on the Holy Spirit, inviting his influence, his presence into our life, then we can begin to exhibit the same faithfulness in our life that is true of God. Let's pray.